Well, let me add my voice of welcome to all of you this morning, and uh, Clinton is enjoying a, a well-rested break, um, and he's on his way back from the Midlands this morning, and so I'm grateful to him for the opportunity this morning of bringing God's Word to you. And for those of you that are watching on live stream, um, a particular welcome to you. Two weeks ago, we remembered Palm Sunday, and we saw how the people sang, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We moved through the Passion Week, and we witnessed the cruelty of the cross. And we saw the very same people who a week earlier had proclaimed his greatness were now hurling abuse at him as he was crucified. We asked the question, how could the people's attitude towards Jesus change from one of worship and adoration to one of mocking and scorn? Now the answer, of course, lies in the profound truth that Jesus refused to be who the people wanted him to be, but rather he chose to be who they needed him to be. And that's the very essence of the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we come this morning to a passage where this fundamental truth is again illustrated. Jesus choosing to be who the people needed him to be, not who they wanted him to be. It's also a passage that appears in all four of the gospel writings. So I think it's safe to assume that the message of the passage is important and that we should take particular notes of the lessons in this narration. Our reading this morning is found in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 43. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now the danger when coming to a passage that is familiar and well-known is that we switch off because we wonder what the passage has for us. We know it all too well, but I want to encourage you not to do that this morning. Now if you're someone who likes to take notes, we're going to look at three unexpected responses from Jesus in this passage, and we're going to do so under three headings. Firstly, we'll look at Jesus' concern for the apostles. Secondly, his compassion for the crowd. And thirdly, the challenge to the disciples. And then we'll identify some lessons of personal application. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 43, and I'm reading from the, from the CSB. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so that they can get into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. 
Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 basketfuls of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Before we look closer at this passage, it's important to place it into context. And I see a general context as well as a specific context in this event. The general context is that in verse 30, we read that the disciples came to Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, why did they do this? Well, if we look back at a few verses in in Mark's chapter at verse 7, we see that Jesus has called his disciples together and commissioned them to go out two by two and preach the gospel. They were given authority over unclean spirits. They were given instructions on what to take with them, where to stay, and when to leave. You can read about that in verses 7 to 13. And this commissioning would have been on the back of Jesus' original call to Simon and Peter in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, when he said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then later on in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, we read of Jesus appointing the 12 disciples as apostles to be with him and to go out for him, to be with him and to go out for him to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And so they're doing exactly what Jesus had instructed them to do, as we read about in verse 12 and 13. In verse 30, they return to Jesus, and we have a sort of a report back by the disciples. They gathered and told Jesus of all the preaching they had done, all the many demons they had driven out, the many sick that they had healed, and all those that they had anointed with oil. And here we find Jesus' first unexpected response. You see, listening to them, Jesus doesn't encourage them to go back and get even busier. Rather, he suggests a sort of a retreat. Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest a while. You see, folks, a retreat was the tried and tested rest pattern of Jesus. On the boat in the storm, when the disciples were fretting, Jesus was sleeping. After teaching the people in the synagogues, driving out demons and healing the sick, Jesus woke up the very early the next morning and went to pray in a solitary place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the mock trial and the cruelty of the cross, Jesus himself set himself aside and went to pray. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the story has a specific context as well. Sandwiched in between the account of Jesus commissioning his disciples and going out to preach, to go out and preach and heal the sick, and their report back to Jesus in verse 30 is the account of the beheading of John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29. Now, can you imagine when that news reached Jesus and his disciples, how they must have felt at hearing that news? Added to that in verse 31, we read that the disciples were so busy that they would not even have time to eat. They were exhausted. They were probably traumatized, and they were starving. Now, I need to pause here 
and just ask you how you're doing in the taking time to rest department. You see, nowhere in Scripture will you find a God-ordained strategy of burning the candle at both ends. God is not impressed with a workaholic. I'm reminded of the story of a first grader who became curious that her father had brought home a briefcase full of papers every evening. Her mother explained, you know, Daddy is, has so much work to do that he can't finish it at the office that he has to bring it home at night to finish. She thought about this for a while and then said, well, why don't they put Daddy in a slower group? <laughs> a few years ago, on Father's Day, my, my children made me a card. And in the card they had written, thanks, Dad, for always working so hard for us. And I thought about that afterwards and I thought, is that what I want to be remembered by? Is that my legacy, that I've always worked hard and that's it? You see, Jesus knew that when the disciples were physically and mentally exhausted, too busy even to take care of their own needs, it was time to withdraw and rest. Jesus understood the importance of balance, and so he incorporated rhythms of rest into his life. In Matthew 11, verse 28, we read, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is saying to us, I'll show you how to take rest. Watch how I do it. And so Jesus doesn't just offer rest, he shows us how to do it. You see, rest is a necessity, it's not a luxury. It's an act of worship. It's not a sign of laziness. But let's get back to our passage. The second unexpected response of Jesus concerns his compassion for the crowd and is found when he and his disciples arrive at their place of retreat. Having crossed the boat for some R&R, the disciples must have really been looking forward to some chill time, some alone time. But who's there to meet them when they arrive? Well, it's the very crowd that they were trying to get away from. Verse 33 tells us, But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. I can imagine the disappointment of the disciples. Put yourself in their shoes. Bring it a bit closer to home. Imagine that you had planned a weekend getaway with your spouse after a really busy and stressful time. And as you'd driven up to the mountain getaway, there waiting for you in the car park was all your work colleagues, your belligerent and grumpy boss, and that bad-tempered neighbor who, had, who was the cause of all your migraine headaches. I think it would be fair to say that that would have put a real dampener on the weekend. But I want you to notice how Jesus responded in verse 34. It says, when he went ashore, he saw the large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus is actually quoting here Moses' prayer to God at the end of his life when Moses, who was looking for a successor, in Numbers 27 verse 17, asked of God, who will go out before them and come back in before them? And who will bring them out and bring them in? So the Lord's community won't be like sheep without a shepherd. This is Moses praying to God and saying, 
May the Lord anoint a man over this community to go out and lead them so that the people's people, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. See, essentially what Moses is saying to God is, after me, God, you must, you must give the children of Israel a political and a military leader. So when Jesus looks upon the crowd and as they're coming and says they're like sheep without a shepherd, he knows what they're after. They want, they want him to be their political and military leader who liberates them from oppression. They want him to be another Moses or another Joshua. That's the role the people wanted him to play. It's not the role he chose to play. Rather, he chose the role that he knew the people needed him to play. And we know what that role is. In Isaiah 40 verse 11 we read, He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. See, the image of Jesus as the good shepherd of the flock in this, in this passage is prominent. Listen to what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes as he, as he explains the plight of the people without a shepherd. Bonhoeffer says, there were questions but no answers, distress but no relief, anguish of conscience but no deliverance, tears but no consolation, sin but no forgiveness. They were waiting for good news, but all they got was good advice. You see, Bonhoeffer then asks, what's the use of the scribes, the teachers of the law, the preachers, and the rest of them when there are no shepherds of the flock? You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, there's an interesting use of the word for compassion in this verse. In the original Greek, it's the word splagizomaio. Now, if you speak Greek fluently, I'm sorry if I just butchered that word. But it's essentially a word from anatomy, and it means to be moved to one's bowels. It's, it's gut-wrenching. It's at the very core of one's being. So do you get what is being said here? Jesus was so moved, he was so stirred at their lostness that he had compassion on them. And so how does he respond? Well, he responds in a most unexpected way. He began to teach them. Teach them? Why on earth would he began to teach them? You see, our 21st century way of thinking might suggest that if the people are lost and bewildered, we should call on the services of a psychologist and prescribe a good dose of therapy. Or perhaps we should create recovery groups for sufferers to share their experiences with each other. Or what about proper medication to attain the right mental and emotional balance? Now, of course, there might be some value in any one of these responses, but let's ask for a moment, what did Jesus do? He taught them. And here perspective is very important. Let me illustrate it like this. If a businessman were to come across this crowd and view them from a businessman's perspective, what would he see? Well, he would see a market and he would see opportunity. He would see a chance to peddle whatever it was that he was selling. And we would expect him to have such a view because that would be his responsibility. But what did Jesus see? As the great shepherd, he saw a people who were lost just like sheep without their shepherd. And so he taught them. 
You see, the problem was that the religious leaders were not doing what they were meant to be doing. What Jesus saw was spiritually and physically hungry people wrapped up in all sorts of religious red tape. They were spiritually starved as well as materially impoverished. And nobody seemed to care. And so he taught them. Now Mark refrains from giving a full account of what Jesus taught the people. But for several hours into the afternoon, Jesus taught them about himself. We can imagine it must have been an embryonic version of what it must have been like for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus taught them all about what Scripture had to say about himself. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these Jewish people to gather and for Jesus to tell them about himself as he took them through an overview of the Old Testament and to say to them, now when you look at the prophets of the Old Testament telling the people of one who will come to save mankind, that he was the one that the prophets were talking about. When you look here and anticipate a king who will reign on David's throne, that's me. I'm the one who he's speaking of. When you read of Moses who delivered the people from their captivity to set them free from slavery, I'm the greater Moses who will set you free forever from your sins and you will never be in captivity again. When you imagine one who will suffer and bear the sins of all the people and die on a cruel cross, that's me. I will eventually go and suffer for all of you because I love you. And so you can imagine as the afternoon rolls on, the people are amazed, they are astonished, they are intrigued as they are spoken to by this preacher. You see, beloved, the greatest need we all have is for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That is why God has given as gifts to the church pastors and teachers. In Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, we read that He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some teachers. Why was that? Well, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. If that were not so, God would have simply said, Look, you've all got a Bible, go away and read it, go and study it for yourselves. But he didn't do that. Now why is that? It's because he has entrusted some to explain the truths of the Bible and to teach the Bible. But how did the people respond? When the passage says that Jesus had compassion on them and began to teach them, it doesn't say that they responded by saying, well, that's not what we're looking for. And then they began to move away in their droves. No. The appearance is that the crowd is growing as he teaches. And as the afternoon progresses, there are 5,000 men who gather and find themselves under the instruction of Jesus. Now, if that was only the men, and we add the women and the children, there, would probably, there was probably a crowd of anything between fifteen and 20,000 people. The greatest need we all have is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. But let's continue with the narrative, which brings us to the third unexpected response. And that's the challenge to the disciples. Now it's at this point that the disciples take it upon themselves to come to Jesus and tell him what to do. It's one of those passages in the Bible where the disciples just don't get it. And we can say that with certainty because later on in Mark 6 at verse 52 it, he tells us that the disciples had not understood about the loaves. 
And the exchange between Jesus and his disciples at this point is almost comical. You see, the disciples appear to be very pragmatic and sensible. Their first observation to Jesus is they were in a remote place. Well, they had deliberately retreated there. So that's obvious. Then their second observation is it was late. Well, yes, he'd been teaching them all afternoon. But then they go ahead to tell Jesus to send the crowd away so that they can go and get food. Now let me just pause here and make the comment that isn't it typical of how we sometimes come to Jesus with our predetermined agenda, our self-designed outcome to a particular problem, and a request that really says, Jesus, please just bless the outcome of this matter in the way that I would like it to be. But they were surely not prepared for Jesus' response. He says, you give them something to eat. You see, he confronts them with something that is absolutely beyond human resourcefulness. And remember, in verse 8 earlier on, we read that when Jesus was commissioning them to go out, he told them not to take anything with them, no bread, no bag, and no money. So Jesus knew that they had nothing. It's like the situation is a flashback to Moses and the Israelites in the desert in Numbers 11, when Moses cries out to God and says, where shall I find meat for all these people? And God intervened in the wilderness in a, in, a, in a most miraculous way by providing manna and quails. And so here we are again. Here they are again in the rural part of the hill country in a remote place with a similar dilemma. And so Jesus asks them how many loaves they had. The disciples run off and after a quick recce, they come back and they report that they found five loaves and two fish. Now, they may be forgiven to, to act smugly as they reported this back to Jesus. It was as if they say, see, we told you so, not nearly enough food. Now send the people away. It's at this point that Mark records in verse 39 a little nugget, which I don't want you to miss. It says there, then Jesus directed them to, to, them to have all the people sit down on the green grass. Now, I've given you enough hints already this morning about where this should take you. Where's that? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You see, beloved, Jesus is the great shepherd. He is the Lord of all. He is the shepherd of all of Israel. He is the king of creation. He is not bound by the rules of normal experience or nature. He created the whole universe. He knit together every man, woman, and child that was there that day in their mother's womb. There is nothing which is impossible for him. So when the disciples say, you're asking us to do the impossible, well, of course, that's the entire point. That's the whole point of it. When Jesus says, until you see what I'm calling you to do is impossible, you're absolutely not qualified to do what I need you to do. But notice how he goes about this miracle. First of all, he works with the food they have, which is inadequate. He uses their food, but it's inadequate for the job. Then only as the disciples go out with this inadequate food is it multiplied. 
Only as they go out does Jesus actually meet the need. His power only happens through the disciples. So what do you think Jesus is saying? You see, Jesus is saying, what I'm calling you to do, my work in the world, is impossible. It will take a miracle. And if you go out knowing it's impossible, knowing you're unqualified, knowing it will take a miracle, and yet you go out and do it anyway, then and only then will Jesus do his restoration work through you. There's this great quote by a commentator on 2 Corinthians that puts it perfectly like this. Listen to what he says. It is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people, and lack of money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. You see, all the problems, all the difficulties, all the limitations, all the impossibilities, we're not only supposed to do our work that Jesus gave in spite of all these things, they are requisites for it. Only the inadequate are adequate. Only when, we know, only when you know that you're inadequate and you go out and do it anyway, only when you know it's going to take a miracle for the things that you've been called to do and you do it anyway, will Jesus begin to do his work in and through you? How does that song go that we used to sing in Sunday school? Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He can do just what none other can do. And so, beloved, in fact, it's the strategy of God to bring us to the end of our human resources so that we and others that are watching may know that it's God's doing and not our own. And that's why Paul can say with confidence in 2 Corinthians 12 that although he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan that God chose not to remove, that he can say, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, friends, when he says, you give them something to eat, and we say, we have nothing to give them, then you and I are right in the place for God's dramatic intervention. And so the story continues. Jesus blesses the loaves and the fishes. He gives them to the disciples to distribute, and everyone has more than enough food, loaves and fish. And everyone ate, and everyone was satisfied. But don't lose the deeper significance of this moment. In verse 41 it says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, literally the Greek here says, He blessed and broke. Two verbs, he blessed and broke. Later on in Mark chapter 14 verse 22, when Jesus is at the Lord's Supper, the night before he's about to die, it says, Take, eat, this is my body. And it's the same two verbs used here. He blessed and broke. 
That is what is, this event is pointing to. So Jesus is saying to everybody who comes after him, trying to make him king, you want a new Moses. You want a Moses who will feed you with bread in the wilderness. You want a Moses who will liberate you from oppression. You want a new Moses, a new Joshua. Well, I'm not just a new Moses. I'm the ultimate Moses. I've come to do the ultimate exodus, not to liberate you just for a while from political oppression, but to liberate you forever from sin and from death itself. Here's how I'm going to do it. And how is that? Well, it's on the cross. Jesus on the cross, looking at the people killing him, the people rejecting him, and he says, Father, forgive them. Then he died. In other words, he blessed the people who were killing them, killing him, and he broke. He broke. If you see him blessing and breaking on the cross, first as your substitute and second as your example, then you understand the significance of this moment. Now it's at this point that Mark records somewhat tongue-in-cheek in verse 43 that the disciples collected the leftovers. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve. I can imagine Jesus looking at his small group of bewildered, confused men and with a loving smile saying to them, come on guys, we must continue on our journey. Each bring a basket of food with you which will stain you with food for tomorrow. You see, what was from a human perspective a ludicrously inadequate supply in the hands of Jesus became a bountiful provision and everyone was satisfied. And so even when we have reached the very end of our own resources and our own resourcefulness, when our only response is, we have nothing to give them, can we depend on him for everything? Because he is the bread of life. You see, he says, I've come to save you. I lived the life that you should have lived. I died the death that you should have died. I was broken for you. To really embrace him is not just to try and to be like him. It's to see that what he has done for you and to appreciate that and to ask God, please accept me because of what he has done. And that will change you. If there's anybody here who's said, well, I've embraced Jesus and I'm trying to do his work, but oh my goodness, it's hard. That's exactly where he wants you to be. Remember that only the inadequate are adequate. So what about some application, some personal application from this passage? Well, firstly, it reminds us that Jesus feeds the hungry but sends the rich away. And by rich, I mean that those who have placed anything else, any idol, any attitude, any decision above the decision to follow Christ, those that have no need of Jesus as their Savior, but those that acknowledge their need for him, he feeds them. Beloved, if you are hungry today, Jesus will feed you. But sadly, if you are not, he will send you away. Secondly, this passage illustrates the very clear distinction between practical concern and divine compassion. The disciples were very practical in their response to the problem of the hungry crowd before them, but they were missing the compassion of Jesus. Some of us are like that. Send the crowds away. We don't want to deal with them. 
They're not like us. What they're asking of us is too difficult. Or it's their own fault for getting into this mess in the first place. Jesus was not like that at all. He saw them and immediately had compassion on them and fed them first spiritually and then physically. Thirdly, I'd like you to note the simple distinction between verse 36, when the disciples tell Jesus to send the people away, and verse 39, when Jesus tells his disciples to seat the people. Send them versus seat them. Send them away, Jesus, say the disciples. Sit them down, says Jesus. How do you respond to a need that's in front of you? And we're confronted with so many needs every day, every situation that we come across. Send them away or sit them down. And finally, it's impossible to read this passage without recognizing the simple truth that God takes the impossible situations, unbelievably limited resources, and he multiplies them for the, for the well-being of others and for the glory of his name. So have you offered up your resources to God as little or as scarce as they may be? Your time, your talents, your energy, your finances, your gifts, your relationships. They may not be much, but in the hands of the good shepherd, they can be multiplied for the good of others, but better still, for the glory of of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons which your word has for us. We thank you that on a practical level, Lord, you have afforded to us rest. You've showed us the way of how to rest. You've encouraged us to rest. And we thank you for setting the example. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that it is adequate for all things. And for those that may doubt the power of your word or may doubt the, 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 the power which it brings, help us today, Lord, to be struck anew with the fundamental thought that your word is all power. And then, Father, thank you that you multiply the meager and the scarce resources that we have, that you use them in a most miraculous way. And as we face situations in our own life, when we, when we look at it and we say, Lord, we don't know the way forward, we don't know what to do, we have so little, and yet we trust you. Help us to put our trust in you, to place our resources in your hand, and then to look at you expectantly as you multiply them for the benefit of others and the glory of your name. Amen.